Today on Inland Journal, we wade into the world of sports with two stories. One, a visit to Cheney, where the U.S. Curling Association is holding its 2020 national championship. And correspondent Tom Bonsey tells us about the potential expansion of sports betting in Washington. We'll also talk with Eastern Washington Democratic congressional candidate Chris Armitage. But first, pregnant women and marijuana. We see nationally that more pregnant women are using cannabis, um, uh, mostly to treat nausea at the beginning of their trimester. Celestina Barbosa-Liker is an associate professor of nursing and Washington State University's vice chancellor for health sciences research. Many women stop drinking alcohol after they conceive to protect their unborn children. Researchers know alcohol can lead to low birth weight and other harmful effects. But what do we know about marijuana's effects on fetuses? All national guidelines will say not to use cannabis, even at the preconception age during pregnancy, during breastfeeding, to just stay away from it. But researchers don't know much about the specifics when marijuana passes from mother to child. That's due in part to the fact that marijuana is illegal at the federal level and finding money to research it has been difficult. But pot is now legal in Washington, and Barbosa Liker and her team were interested in why pregnant women use it. We just wanted to talk to women because we weren't sure what we were going to see. We had a feeling that the landscape had just changed across our state. They interviewed 19 women in Washington who were either expecting or who had recently given birth. We had a participant drive four hours to come and talk to us. They really wanted their stories to be told. They wanted to be heard. All of them admitted they smoked pot daily for medical conditions they suffered from before they conceived. Chronic pain um, was the main one um, that we heard about, um, but also bipolar disorder, um, fibromyalgia, anxiety. She says many of the women said they stopped using other pain relievers once they found out they were pregnant. They felt that um, possibly using cannabis um, was a healthier decision other than opioids or ibuprofen. And we don't know that research-wise, but um, the moms that we interviewed felt that that was um, better for themselves and for their baby. And also, they were also trying to cut back as soon as they found out that they were pregnant as well. They were trying to reduce the amount of cannabis. Um, one of them said, you know, I prefer not to be using anything at all, but since I have chronic pain and can't get through the day, um, that I'm just going to, you know, use marijuana um, as little as possible just so that I can manage the pain. Is that a good strategy? No one knows for sure. And Barbosa Liker says it was clear the women wanted more information. The majority of participants expressed frustration with the lack of research. So they were, you know, Googling research studies to, to figure out what the best decision was to make given their current situation. And so they were happy to be contributing to this. Barbosa Liker says scientists believe the effects of smoking marijuana are like the effects of smoking tobacco, with low birth weight one of the potential side effects. But she says the most relevant studies are two or three decades old. New studies need to be done. But she says it may not be easy to do them. Studying pregnant moms in any um, setting is quite difficult. You have to be very careful of the mom, very careful um, of the fetus and the baby. Cannabis research across the nation um, has been, you know, stifled. It's very difficult to study it, um, especially in a state where it's legal, but federally it's illegal. And so um, we're, we're, um, we're bound by, you know, federal law with what we can do and um, licenses to conduct research haven't been given out. And so we're kind of stuck. Um, not that we would ever 
um, you know, give uh, marijuana to pregnant women to study that. And, and um, you know, we were just wanting to hear their stories. They were self-reporting. It was just, you know, listening to um, what the moms were doing. Barbosa Liker says her team will continue to work to answer some of the outstanding questions. Is it better than opioids? Is it just as bad as alcohol or smoking tobacco? Um, we need more studies um, in order to demonstrate that so that people can make healthy, informed decisions based on research. In terms of all that's gone on around it, why is this an important study? So really the aim of this study is to help healthcare providers better educate and work with pregnant moms that they're seeing um, in their offices. So we're hearing from OBs and midwives that a lot of women are reporting using cannabis cannabis now. doesn't necessarily mean that more women are using cannabis, it just means that more women are reporting it, so maybe now that it's not um, illegal in our state that more women feel comfortable. Um, but we're also seeing that the research shows that once a mom reports using cannabis, the conversation kind of ends. There's not a lot of discussion over that. Um, healthcare providers are telling us that they don't feel comfortable talking about all the different products that they have out there now, and so they tend to just stop talking. Or, and, and what um, we heard from our participants, they're given mixed messages. So one healthcare provider might say, you need to stop immediately. This is horrible, just like you know, using heroin or something. And then they'll talk to another healthcare provider that'll say, oh, there's, there's no problem with using at all. It's legal here, so obviously there's no risk. Um, and so they're getting this full spectrum of mixed messages. They're feeling frustrated and confused. They're also reporting a lot of stigma as soon as they report using. And so what I'm trying to get is they're um, out there, is their reasons why that they are using and how healthcare providers can help them have that discussion and really use a harm reduction approach, you know. So I understand that you're using for chronic pain because you got in this major car accident um, a few years ago. So instead of smoking five times a day, can, do you think you can smoke maybe three times a day for now? And then let's see if we can get you down to two times a day or something like that, as opposed to either not saying anything at all, stigmatizing them or telling them, oh, it's completely fine, just use as much as you want. So that's what I'm really hoping that this uh, research will help with. Celestina Barbosa-Liker is an associate professor of nursing and Washington State University's vice chancellor for health sciences research. The presidential election process is well underway with the New Hampshire primary now in the books. Down-ballot races are starting to come to life, too, with candidates, especially challengers, announcing their campaigns, introducing themselves to voters, and raising money. Eastern Washington Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, a Republican, is running for a ninth term. She has one announced challenger. My name is Christopher Armitage. I'm running for the U.S. House of Representatives against Kathy McMorris-Rogers, our 16-year incumbent. I am an Air Force veteran. I deployed to the Middle East twice where I served as security forces and a base defense operations controller. I have a master's of science in homeland security and undergrad in criminal justice. I've also worked in law enforcement as a 911 operator and as a background investigator. Armitage was assigned to Fairchild when he wasn't overseas. Now that he's out of the military, he has turned his eye to politics. He supports policies touted by candidates in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, things like Medicare for all. Those things that I had in the military of amazing health care, education without crippling debt, a living wage, guaranteed housing, I want those to extend to the people I love. 
Armitage says he's carrying that message to all corners of the sprawling 5th District, areas that are rarely friendly to Democrats these days, especially progressives. One of his campaign mentors is Heather Foley, the widow of the former Speaker of the House who represented the 5th District for 30 years. He kept getting elected from 64 up until his final term because he spent as much time outside of Spokane as inside of Spokane. You could see him at the grocery store. You could see him at your local tavern, even in, say, Lincoln County or up in Pend Oreille. And, and that's what he did when he was first running, too. He went out to every corner of this district, and he shook hands at the taverns and at the churches, and he said, my name's Tom Foley. I'm running uh, to represent you in Congress. And I wholeheartedly believe that that's how you break through the media bubble. You show people, hey, I'm actually here to listen to you, and even where we disagree, I want you to know that you can count on my character and my judgment. I'm a working-class guy. My dad had a lot of different jobs. He worked for the railroad. He uh, was an HVAC repairman. Um, my grandfather was a Teamster delivery driver. And that's that's the background I come from. And so just the opportunity to speak to these folks in these different areas and who've never met someone running for Congress before, um, they like it. You know, we, we actually ran an ad a while ago uh, targeted on Facebook, targeted to Trump supporters. And I said, are you mad at a Democrat? Give one a call. Now imagine how mad somebody has to be to call up a stranger to yell at them. And if they didn't hang up in the first five minutes, we would talk for an hour or two. And I made legitimate friends. So when you go talk to one of those farmers down in Walla Walla County or, you know, up in Stevens County or something, where are the areas that you're most likely to connect with them? Healthcare, housing and jobs. Eighty-five percent of uh, of the money that we give to farmers goes to the top one percent of farmers. Uh, it, it doesn't go to our small farms. And the majority of farmers in, say, the Walla Walla Valley are make less than a quarter million dollars a year, which is a small farm. And so they want some of the support for green technology. They're interested in having a, a livable planet. They The farmers there, they're 400 feet above sea level in the Walla Walla Valley. They know that the climate is changing. They know that they're getting less and less winter every single year, that uh, the winter's becoming less predictable. They were holding on to some harvests, for example, a little bit longer for their wine, and then they ended up with an early frost, and it destroyed a bunch of their uh, their crops. They ended up needing a, a small bailout for that. And so these farmers, they want their communities to be reinvigorated, for example. The average age of a farmer, the average farmer in the United States is a 50-year-old, 58-year-old white man. They want the, it to be a viable path for their children. They want new people to be able to enter the farming community. And these rural towns, they are losing their young populations because they don't have jobs. It's not viable for young people to stay in these communities right now. And a lot of this district was built thanks to New Deal policies. It really was, you know, Water Conservation Society and a lot of different groups facilitated the communities that are now struggling once again. Armitage, as we pointed out earlier, supports the concept of eliminating private health insurance in favor of a government program for everyone. Seventy percent of Americans want Medicare for all. Thirty percent of Congress wants it. That doesn't sound very representative to me. In fact, Medicare for all has a higher approval rating than Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when I speak to communities, they know that our, we have a health care crisis. We have tens of thousands of people who are dying because of lack of access to health care. I met with a family recently who lost their 19-year-old son 
to cancer that was preventable because the insurance company wouldn't run a test they called exploratory. And then once he developed symptoms, it was already too late. And everybody's got these stories. I go out to rural communities. You send me up to Newport. I end up talking to a family who has three diabetic members, and they're splitting one prescription between the three of them. Now, you might have your issues with Medicare for All, but as a former commander of mine used to say, there's the best answer is the right answer. The second best answer is the wrong answer. And the worst answer is no answer. And right now, I don't see a lot of answers when it comes to our rep, uh, our representatives. So how do you pay for Medicare for all and um, ensure that people aren't paying more than they're paying for health care right now? I support Medicare for all for the same reason that um, I – one of the same reasons I joined the military because I'd been uninsured and underinsured most of my childhood. When you're active duty military, you have something called TRICARE. Those doctors are salaried. They don't get paid more for seeing more patients. Now, how many people listening to this know what it feels like to show up into a doctor's office? One, to be rushed out as soon as you can so they can see the next patient, but they still get to bill your insurance. And two, feel like they're pushing for you to, say, get extra things done so they can charge more. Now, I, I have a friend who um, they needed work on both their kidneys, and the doctor split it up into two different surgeries instead of doing it in one for one reason, billing. Profit, nobody should make more money because you're more sick. Now, why I support Medicare for All even further is that active duty health care. You go to the doctor. They're salaried. They're wearing a uniform. Uh, they're, they, they care about taking care of you, not about making more money. And so that doctor can say, hey, I don't know that we need to get you an x-ray, but I think let's just check it out. And they don't need to fill out forms. They don't need to go through bureaucracy. They don't need to check with your insurance company. They send you up to the third floor and you get an x-ray. That's it. And that's the model that Medicare for All represents. Now, Medicare has issues. I have family members on Medicare and Social Security. But these can be addressed. There's a lot of effort among different people in the government to convince you the government can't do anything right. But guess what? The military is the government, and that was the best health care I ever had as a working class person in my entire life. And I want my family to be able to have that. My mom shouldn't have to drive four hours to get treatment. Shouldn't have to. And so that's why I support Medicare for All. Chris Armitage is a Democratic candidate for Washington's 5th District U.S. House seat, the seat now held by Kathy McMorris-Rogers. You can hear our entire interview with him on the Inland Journal page at our website. And now to the National Curling Championships underway in Cheney. On Saturday, USA Curling will crown its men's and women's champions. Eight women's teams and ten men's teams are in the middle of a round robin this week. That will culminate with semifinals on Friday and the finals on Saturday. Curling originated in Scotland about 400 years ago. It features four-person teams sliding 40-pound rocks down a sheet of ice toward a target called the house. How many rocks you get there determines your score, says Tom Violette from USA Curling. Well, it's it scored a lot like, say, uh, bocce or horseshoes, where you, you throw all the stones. You're not scoring with every stone you throw. You throw all 16 stones in one direction, eight for each team. After the last rock is thrown, you get one point for every one of your stones that's closer than the other team. So you could have all eight of your stones in the, in the house, but if the other team has one closer, they get one, you get zero. That's how you determine the score for one end, kind of like an inning in baseball. Games at this level are scheduled to last 10 ends. Sometimes they go long if the match is tied after 10. Sometimes they finish early when one team has an insurmountable lead. K-12 
Canada is the powerhouse team in men's curling. It has won more world championships in the last 60 years than any other nation. Scotland, the U.S., Norway, and Sweden are on the next level. Swedish teams have won the last two men's world championships. The defending Olympic champion is a team led by an American, John Schuster. He's a Wisconsin native whose group won gold in 2018. Schuster's in Cheney this week, trying to get back to the world championships where his team won bronze in 2016. He says winning an Olympic gold medal elevated the visibility of curling in the U.S. You know, for the first year it was uh, where we did a lot of things, appearances and, you know, a lot of fun stuff to, again, help grow the game. Have events in places here that don't have a huge curling club presence and to, you know, look out into the stands and see 500 to 1,000 people in here watching curling and uh, that's the effect I think we're starting to see. Curling has been off and on in popularity here in the inland northwest. With the national championships in Cheney, it could help to draw more attention to the sport. The Inland Northwest Curling Club will hold its eighth annual Bonspiel, that's the name of a curling tournament, in April at the Frontier Ice Arena in Coeur d'Alene. The Granite Curling Club in Seattle is one of the most successful local clubs in the nation with national champions over the years at many levels. Tom Violette was a member until he moved to Wisconsin to work for USA Curling. He had quite a career on the ice with national championships and a world championship bronze medal on his resume. His son Luke is still based in Seattle and has won five consecutive junior national titles. And now Violet helps to promote the game and build its fan base in the U.S. The Olympics has basically done to curling what Tiger Woods has done for golf. We're just seeing um, younger and younger athletes coming into the game and much more athleticism than than when I was playing in my prime. Indeed, many of the teams in Cheney are led by young people in their 20s and 30s. They include John Schuster and Stephen Berklid, who is the skip or captain of the only team in the tournament from the Northwest. He's from Mount Lake Terrace, Washington. Berklid says the next step in the growth of the game is to take advantage of its newfound popularity and increase the amount of money flowing to the sport through sponsorships and other things. He hopes that someday at least the best players will be able to support themselves while playing full-time. For now, his main paycheck comes from his Fast Signs franchise, which makes vinyl graphics, car wraps, and that kind of thing. Owning my own shop is helpful for traveling and you know having the, the schedule flexibility. It's pretty hard to be a full-time curler when you don't have funding. The only people that can really do it are the people who have that flexibility, like John, like myself. The John to whom he refers is John Schuster, who jokes that he married up. His wife is his family's main breadwinner. He stays at home with their two small children in between training sessions. You know, my, my major goal is to try to win an Olympic gold medal and, you know, that check that off. But now, you know, the sub-goal of that was to make curling be, you know, close enough to mainstream where, you know, more than just you know, one or two, you know, kids coming out of a curling class like we did growing up, maybe have that opportunity to do something like, you know, myself and my teammates to curl almost like a full-time job. This competition is being live streamed on the USA Curling website. Curling has become a regular part of the Winter Olympics curling coverage on NBC. It even has its own weekly TV show, Curling Night in America, Friday nights on the NBC Sports Network. All of this is great news for the growth of the sport in the U.S., says Tom Violette. It's just great for me personally to see what I had to go through 
when I was this age or competing at this level to get the media to give us any credibility whatsoever. It, we were mostly the butt of jokes. And to see the credibility that the sport gets now, um, every day you can uh, look on your news feed or uh, online and there's, there are legitimate articles about the game, accentuating the athleticism, and uh, it's, it's just really more than anything gratifying to me to see the, that the game has gotten to that level. Both of the winning teams from Saturday's finals will move on to the World Championships. The women in Prince George, British Columbia in mid-March, the men in Glasgow, Scotland in late March. A couple of years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court cleared the way for states beyond Nevada to have sports betting. Oregon dove in last year. Idaho, Washington, and California held back. But now Washington state lawmakers are taking a hard look at legalizing sports betting. Correspondent Tom Bonsey begins our story at a tribal casino in Lincoln City, Oregon. Since last August, visitors to the Oregon coast have been able to bet on a wide range of college and professional sports. Well, I've always wanted to play, and now it's legal, so it's good. I met Greg Scheller of Salem at the Siletz Tribe's Chinook Winds Casino. We're in a former poker room that's been converted into a Vegas-style sports book with lounge tables, 15 TVs tuned to different games, and a teller counter where attendants can explain sports betting to a newbie like me. But here we go, March Madness. So we get our sheet, we'd find Gonzaga. And they should be at the top. Yeah. The casino's Matt Pond helps me place a bet on the eventual NCAA basketball champion. On the sheet, Gonzaga is 8-1 to one to win. Okay, so if I bet $5 of the company dime, so you would win. hopefully management doesn't hear this. <laughs> You'd win eight times that for $40, plus you would get your bet back, so 45 total. Oh, okay, I'll take that odds. So there I've done it, taken part in a fast-growing sector of the gambling industry. All right, here's your ticket, $5. Good luck, sir. Sports betting is set to expand more in Oregon later this year with at least a couple more tribal casinos. And then there is the Oregon Lottery. It plans to introduce sports betting kiosks in bars and retailers. This will broaden the reach of the lottery's relatively new smartphone sports betting app. Sports wagers become illegal as soon as you cross the state line into Washington, Idaho, or California. But that doesn't mean fans in those states are sitting on their money. Republican State Senator Curtis King of Yakima says black market bookies and offshore casino websites are taking bets from Washingtonians. Sports wagering is going on in this state right now, and, it, and it's not controlled, uh, and we need to develop a system by where it is controlled. King sponsors one of the four separate proposals in the Washington legislature to legalize sports betting to a greater or lesser degree. King's measure would allow sports betting in tribal casinos, at horse racing tracks, and in non-tribal card rooms, also known as mini-casinos. The state of Washington would get a cut of the off-reservation revenue. A company that owns 19 neighborhood card rooms put muscle behind this proposal. 
Vicki Christofferson lobbies for Maverick Gaming. All communities should benefit from this. Um, we're seeing across the nation uh, the legalization of sports betting and the tax revenue that can come with that. The state can realize revenue as well as our partners and the, tribe, the tribes in an Indian country. A competing measure and the prevailing one at the moment in the Washington legislature would leave out operators like Maverick and allow sports betting only in tribal casinos. Puyallup Tribal Chairman David Bean testified in favor of having limited availability, by the way, much more limited than in Oregon. Uh, one thing that uh, we do not want to see, uh, we do not want our children having access uh, to mobile um, online mobile gaming. We don't want our college students subjected to that type of pressure or that type of access, when they, anything that would distract them from, from learning. It's difficult to handicap the odds for whether Washington State will join Oregon and the 19 other states with sports betting. The initial committee votes in Olympia have been favorable, but there's not much time on the shot clock in this year's short legislative session. Any proposal to expand gambling needs to pass with a 60% supermajority in both houses of the Washington legislature, according to the state constitution. I'm Tom Bonsey reporting. Inland Journal airs every Thursday on Spokane Public Radio. The podcast is available anytime at spokanepublicradio.org. Subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or Google Play. Send your comments and story ideas to inlandjournal at kpbx.org. Thanks for joining us. I'm Doug Nadvornik.